The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you so much, Dave, for the update and the prayer. And uh, we continue to believe that God is leading us in this. I spoke with Pastor Calvert Lane of the Truth and Life Worship Center this past week again, and we uh, continue to trust in the Lord as to His direction upon this whole relationship. And so we would ask you now and invite you into that whole equation that God would would hear our prayer and our, our focus is really on Him. He, he knows the situation. He, he will bring resolve. I believe that God has directed us to the book of Nehemiah in these months leading into our transition to the new property. I believe that uh, not one detail of the entire transition is escaping God's look upon it. It's not lost on God. It's, he's watching over everything from budgets and to buildings from boards to bureaucracies he's keeping an eye on us as well his people and uh, he is able to watch how how we handle things right when they don't go our way how will we handle holdups and detours roadblocks and setbacks opposition and so on he is waiting and watching to see how we will relate to him when we don't quite see it happen or how we will relate to each other when we, we don't see eye to eye on the things that uh, we, we, we are planning and, and uh, purposing. And um, one of the words that recurs in Nehemiah uh, over and over again, just in a few chapters, I counted 14 times, and the word that is recurring is work, the word work. And at the end of the project, when the walls of Jerusalem are built against all odds, at the end of that in chapter 6, verse 16, of Nehemiah, we read, when all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid, they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And uh, so that's our focus. We need to keep always remembering it's not, it's not our job. It's, not, it's God's work and we just need to keep our focus on Him and be cooperating and, and available, disposable to Him and ready for His leading. And any work that God has called us into will be accomplished by Him in His time because He faithfully keeps His promises. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, who it's now it's called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, the same, same mission that uh, Brenda and Tim Noble are in Thailand with. Uh, Hudson Taylor once said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And we either believe that or we don't. And uh, like, like Dave said, it requires planning and praying and patience. And so may God lead us in these months to come. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning? And as we open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, we are <clears throat> now beginning to look at just how it was that God took one man, a leader in Israel, to lead a project that was far beyond his scope or capacity to do. And, they, and he took a group of people, the, the exiles that had turned, returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and he, he used meager resources, and he multiplied unto them the things that were not within their grasp in order to do something that was superhuman, supernatural, and in all, in all human explanation, it's very difficult to understand how so few people with so few resources accomplished such a task in such a short time. And so in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to just begin 
by reading in verse 11, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And if you're able to stand, would you please stand now to listen to God's Word? Nehemiah chapter 2, and beginning in verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. And finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or anyone else who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in in Jerusalem. It lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also tell, told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. May God bless his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> to begin with, I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story. I'm asking you to go back into your childhood, perhaps. I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's the fourth book, which is called Prince Caspian. And there's a wonderful scene in Prince Caspian where C.S. Lewis describes a wee little mouse. And this little mouse's name is Reepicheep. And he is the self-appointed chief mouse, the humble servant of Prince Caspian, perhaps the most valiant knight in all of Narnia. His chivalry is unsurpassed among all mice, as also are his courage and his skill with the sword, a courage that arises out of his deep devotion and love for Aslan and his prince. So there's one scene where this little mouse, Reepicheep, is in a, a terrible battle and he comes through it almost getting killed and he, he kneels before Aslan at the end of it, but he realizes that as he kneels before the lion, he has lost his tail in this great battle. And he asks, he pleads with Aslan to restore his tail. And Aslan responds by saying, why do you want your tail? And the mouse responds to Aslan by saying, I can eat, and I can sleep, and I can die for my king without one, but a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. To which Aslan responds rather harshly, I have wondered sometimes, little friend, whether you do not think too much about your own honor. Now, at this very moment, at once, Aslan realizes that not just 
little ripichi, but every other mouse has drawn his sword. And Aslan asks Ripichi, what is, what is the meaning of this? To which a second little mouse steps forward. And his name is Pipichik, if I'm getting that right, right? And he says to Aslan, may it please your high majesty, drawn sword in hand, may it please your high majesty as we are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied by our Most High Mouse. And Aslan responds with a roar. And he says, Ah, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Ripachip, but for the love that is between you and your people. You shall have your tail again. I love that story. We said last week that the restoring of the walls of Jerusalem was all about the favor of the Lord God upon a few meager exiles and this particular man, Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king. And we must realize, even as we address that incredible vertical favor that comes from God, that in the same way, God's favor is shown in the horizontal, in the relationships that God's people have in the process of any great work. That's why in our church family here, we believe that nurturing followers of Jesus Christ has to do with healthy relationships. We cannot expect that the favor of God will rest upon any project or people if in the same moment that people are not developing and maintaining healthy relationships. Not respecting those who are in authority. Not following through on things that need to be confessed and forgiven. And so this morning as we continue in our study of Nehemiah, we see an incredible, incredible loyalty and favor that God's people, the exiles in Jerusalem, show to this man, Nehemiah, who is appointed by God to lead the entire project. Incredible loyalty. And so as we look at this chapter, we notice, first of all, I want to say, that there was a planning that went on. We see it right away in verse 11 where we read, where Nehemiah, having finally arrived on site, takes his horse and with a few trusted men goes by night under the cover of darkness and inspects the walls himself. You know, it's interesting. There's something here, I believe, about good leaders. Good leaders like to do their own research, don't they? I mean, I mean, it's, it's okay that we can read all the things that other people are saying. We can see the studies and surveys and research, but, but there's something about a leader that says, I've got to have my own skin in the game. I want to see it for myself. I'll do my own research, thank you. There's something about that. And so Nehemiah does his research after having prayed for months and planned for months. He now finally sees what others have been telling him about. And in that moment, he begins to do what has to be done before any great project will be embarked on, and that is define it. This is a definition of the work. Just what is at stake here? 
the scope, the, the limitation, the, the time will be required, the materials. And so in the process of this, he, he calls upon God to, to lead him in the how of it. You see, it's not just enough to know that God has opened the way for something. We must be in step with God all along the way on the detours and the opposition and the, and the hurdles that come so that we will be in step with God on how God wants to see His work accomplished. Let me pause to say that indeed I, I see and I, I believe that by the grace of God we've seen good relationship in our church family. And by the grace of God, we see a plethora of, of leadership, of gifting, of ability that has gone to different facets of the project that we're in right now, building a new building and, and raising money and so on. And I cannot help but be great, grateful to God for this. And how, how as staff, as pastoral ministry people, we, we look at this and we say, thank you, God, that, that we don't have to get dragged into some of these avenues of ministry because we would, we would blow it. We are not gifted in that area. And yet, God has raised up leadership. God has given us healthy relationships. And it's, it's partly for this very reason I requested from the board recently that part of my continuing education this year would be an excursion to visit other churches in Canada that are doing church well. Their leadership is, is well. There's healthy relationship. There's impact upon community. And I asked our denominational leaders, what would that look like? What churches would you recommend? And so this week, I'm going out west to visit some of those churches. And I would ask you to pray for me. Because we recognize as pastoral staff that, that we need to up our game. We need to be awakened to what God has for us. I believe that God is going to expand the opportunities for ministry, the kingdom footprint, the capacity that is going to grow. And we need to be ready for the steps that are coming. And so, doing some of my own research, I guess. A second thing we see in this text is, is the problems that are faced, the opposition any pioneering, ambitious exercise in pursuing God's will is going to be met with opposition, with naysayers, with onlookers mocking. I was reading recently that in history it shows it through so many inventions. For example, the very first steamboat, can you imagine? The very first steamboat was so slow that other people passed by in other boats and laughed. The very first Ford motor car was so slow that people in horse and buggy passed by and laughed. The very first light bulb, electric light bulb, was so dim that people had to light gas lamps to see it, and they laughed. The first airplane that ever flew was in the air for 59 seconds before it came down, and people laughed. You see, there'll be no end to the kind of naysaying, mocking, critical criticism that will come for any new venture that people venture out on the world of spectators scoffers critics and mockers is huge and any group that decides we're going to follow god we're going to step out in faith we're going to do something that seems a little big for us is going to be met with opposition always and yet we cannot let those voices discourage us in chapter 2 verse 19 we met up with the very first naysayers to the nehemiah project 
And interestingly, if you've noticed their names, they are called Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. Notice that they are from three different tribes and, and nations. Isn't it interesting the kind of alliance that can form by being defined of what you're against? Here are, are three groups of peoples that normally do not befriend each other, but for the sake of opposing this other group of people, they're going to be friends. They're going to form an alliance. I've often thought that the only thing that's ever going to unite planet Earth is if some other planet attacks us. That might do it. And so here we see this happening in Nehemiah with a man who has ballast in his life and solid calling from God is unfazed by their taunts, their ridicules, their accusations. And look what he says in response, verse 20. He says, The God of heaven will give us success, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. These are words that are powerful. They're, they're words of conviction and they end the conversation. They end the conversation. I'm not going to mess around my time because my focus is on God. And so we must be called by God and we must not let other voices discourage us. I want to say this very specifically today. And I do not know if this applies to an individual that's sitting right now in this room or that is listening to it on our, on our webpage. But I want to say to you, are you convinced that God has clearly led you on a certain path? If, if, if I ask that question and, and you can say, yes, I am convinced that God has led me on a certain path, then I want to say to you that God's Word says to you, do not let any other voice dissuade you from the path that God has called you on. And if that applies to any individual here in specific, I trust that you will receive it as from Lord God Himself and be encouraged. The next thing we look at is found in chapter 3 where the project and the organization of the work is looked at. And, and I love how gifted Nehemiah is in his organizational delegation abilities. We don't have time to look in detail at chapter 3, but I want to tell you the scope of this project is enormous. The project is described in terms of the gates. All throughout chapter 3, there are eight gates that are mentioned the entire circumference of the ancient Jerusalem. Eight gates. And then once they had the gates in place, all they had to do was fill in between the gates <laughs> with walls that were three to four feet thick, made of stone, and 15 to 20 feet high. So, I'm not sure if I'd want a gate or a wall to build in that project. Now, I add to that the fact that it's more than a mile in circumference, okay? A, a, a wall a mile around the city, three to four feet thick, 15 to 20 feet high on the resources and people power that the exiles had. This is nothing short of remarkable, supernatural. Now, I want to just draw attention to a few things that are key components of what Nehemiah did and the quality of leadership that broke it down to size, divided it up into about 40 different projects or 40 different tasks that needed to be done, and then assigned everybody, every family head, knew his, his section of the wall, 
First thing I want you to note is that the word next to him or next to them is, is used over 20 times in chapter 3. They just drew, a, drew it out and, and next to them were these people and next to them were these people and they plotted it out that way. The next phrase is, it says four times in, these, in, these, in this chapter, in front of his house or beside his house. So four times it's mentioned that when at all possible, if we could give a section of the wall to someone whose house is right there, that seemed wise because they would be vigilant about that all night and day and they would be motivated to make sure that part of the wall is complete. The third thing I see is that there was delegated authority. He gave, for example, in verse 17, the Levites worked underneath a man named Rehum, son of Bani. And a few times it says that there was a, a delegated authority. Certain people worked in teams underneath someone else who reported to Nehemiah. But not everybody did that. We read in verse 5 about a group of people that refused to lay their shoulder to the work. It's verse 5, it says, The nobles of the men of Tekoa would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. And so, lest we get a picture of this rosy, absolutely unified group, there were some that were, were resisting the work. Now, we don't know why. Was it their nobility that said, I'm not going to get my hands dirty with masonry? Was it the fact that they were put underneath other supervisors that had less of a status that made them say, this is offensive to my pride and my status in life. I'm not sure why. But they didn't, they didn't lend a hand. Yet they were going to benefit from the entire project. The only redeeming quality comes in verse 27 when other men of Tekoa, not nobility, it says, it says that they did another section which in some some people think this is meaning that, that in addition to the section that they did, they did another section to make up for the ones that the nobility were not doing. Praise God that we have, again, as I said earlier, leadership in our church. We have people who are willing servants. We see that one of the things that God has put on the board and staff is to grow a capacity for service in our midst, and we're seeing that through surveys and questionnaires that you have responded to, and we're believing that God is going to expand the ministry footprint of our church because of a facility that can house more ministry and because of a membership that is more determined to spend their lives for the sake of ministry. And we believe that God is about doing that. And then the fourth and final thing I want to point out in terms of the organization of the work is the people that are involved. There are 38 names mentioned in chapter 3. The heads of clans or families. Nehemiah's name is not mentioned, but we know that he was overseeing the entire project. And, and, and it was different kinds of people too. There were priests and Levites, temple servants. There were goldsmiths and tradesmen, merchants, officials, private citizens, masters and servants worked side by side on the same wall. Women and men worked together some in families, some in other teams. And in chapter 4, verse 6, which we'll look at next week, it says they worked with all their heart. They worked with all their heart. And uh, sometimes they had to work under this cloak of, of, uh, of re recognizing that the enemy was staring them down the whole time. 
Sometimes they had to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Sometimes they had to work and spell each other off. While one stood guard, the other could work on, on the wall. But God gave them success. Sometimes they had to have a, a call to one portion of the wall because of the fact that that was where the enemy attacked. And so Nehemiah, next week we'll look at this, Nehemiah had a trumpeteer with him at all times. And he said, whenever you hear the trumpet, rally to that section of the wall. I, I picture this as a prayer ministry for a church. That as together as, as a church, we, we hear the trumpet call. We say, pray for this family. Pray for that need. And we rally ourselves and we, we, we load up heaven with prayers on a certain front. And God, in His mercy, says, I see my people seeking my face together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless them. I think that's what the trumpet means. I think that it's a picture of a praying church working together where the wall is most vulnerable where the people are most weak. Now, as I sat with this sermon, I finished it yesterday around noon. And I didn't feel good about it. And I sat with the Lord and I, I just said, God, I, what, what is wrong with this sermon? And it seemed like the Lord was saying to me, there's no Christ in this sermon. There's no Gospel in this sermon. And one of, my, one of my loves is to go into the Old Testament and find Jesus there all the time, concealed in the Old and revealed in the New. But, but I had to find Jesus Christ in this text. And so I began to study again. In fact, I, I encourage you as we go through any book of the Old Testament, let's determine that we are going to have Jesus-spotting moments, okay? I spotted Jesus in this text in the Old Testament. And I found him, friends. I found him. It was glorious last night. It's in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I want to conclude my time with you this morning by talking to you about the sheep gate. We notice in chapter 3 that when the work finally begins, they actually get off of the, the, the planning table and get outside and start to go to the walls. First of all, I want you to notice from chapter 3, verse 1, who is it that leads the charge? Look in your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 1. Who is it that leads the charge? Someone call it out. The high priest. Praise God. And along with the high priest, the other fellow priests. The high priest is leading the charge. It says they went to work. The suggestion here is that they were the ones that led by example and said, let's get at it. Now, where did they begin the work? Someone yell it out. The sheep gate. What was significant about the sheep gate was the fact that the animals that were being brought to the temple for sacrifice, all animals came in the sheep gate. An animal did not come into Jerusalem that was going to be used for sacrifice if it did not come in the sheep gate. And there was no lamb that ever came in the sheep gate that went out the sheep gate. So the high priests took the initiative. They led the way. They, they built the sheep gate. It doesn't say they just built it. They rebuilt it. And then it says they dedicated it. And I'm thinking to myself, could they not wait till the end of the whole project and dedicate the whole thing? No, no, no. We couldn't wait. 
We couldn't wait to consecrate and dedicate the Sheep Gate. Why? What has not been going on for 70 years, folks? Sacrifice. There's not been one animal that has been offered to God as a, as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And one of the first things that they determined that they must get right is temple worship. Worshiping the Lord God. Saying, we got to get this right. Lord, you have said to us in your law that bring a sacrifice, bring an offering before me, and we're going to start doing that. And the high priest took the lead. And we read in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ is our high priest. We read in the Scriptures in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way such as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, come with boldness before the throne of grace so that you might receive mercy and receive grace in your time of need. Jesus Christ takes the initiative just like the high priest did. He took the initiative. He led the way. He is our great high priest. We have communion with God because of Jesus Christ. But He's not just the high priest, folks. He's also the gate. Jesus is the sheep gate. And this is, for me, profound that in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. Verse 7. And he says, whoever enters through me will be saved. Folks, that was not the case for the sheep that entered through the sheep gate. In fact, whoever entered through the sheep gate was not saved. They were slaughtered. But Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. How is that? Because Jesus is not just the high priest. And he's not just the gate. He is the lamb. He is the sheep. He is, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the sheep. And Jesus is also the good shepherd. And what does he say the good shepherd's chief task was? He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, I see Jesus in the sheep gate. What a glorious, what a glorious foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ would come and do centuries later when He would be our high priest. He would be the gate that we can enter. He would be the sacrifice that was sufficient to bring us to God and forgive us our sins. He would be the shepherd of our souls. And I think that just as the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem needed to start with the sheep gate, friends, I believe that the renewal of God's people always has to start with the sheep gate. In other words, we as the people of God have to maintain our sheep gates. You as an individual Christian must maintain your sheep gate. What does that mean? It means that you must be regularly coming before God confessing your sin daily. You must be regularly grateful to God for this incredible open way that He's provided through Jesus Christ. You must be regularly understanding that because you have a high priest who has gone before you, He sympathizes. No matter what sin you might be hassled with, wrestling through, no matter what weakness you might be in, Jesus Christ as our high priest walked in your shoes. He knows how you feel. And so we have this incredible incredible privilege as God's people 
If we will be renewed, we must start by building the sheep gate, by remembering the sacrifice that was made and the Lord Jesus who intercedes for us. As the worship team comes, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And I'm going to pray for you. And as we pray, perhaps there is something on your mind. If you only heard the first part of my sermon, the fear I had yesterday afternoon was that someone could hear about Nehemiah and good organizational skills and principles of leadership and and leave not knowing not knowing the gospel, not knowing Christ. And so this morning, let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, today there's someone standing here right now that needs to know you as, as their high priest. The one that they can go to knowing that you intercede for them before the Father. Knowing that you sympathize with the, the crud of life the muck of life, the things that they've been hassled with, the sins that cling to them. Lord, receive our confession this moment. Jesus, our High Priest, we come boldly before Your throne of grace. We thank You, Lord, for Your intercession. We thank You, Jesus, that You you opened up the sheep gate. You restored the sheep gate for us to come in. And we can go in and we can come out. No sheep ever came out, but we can go in and we can come out and we can find pasture because Jesus Christ, You opened up the way and You became the Lamb of God who took away our sin. We thank You that You are High Priest. We thank You that You are the gate. We thank You that You are the sheep, the sacrifice. And we thank You that You are our Good Shepherd. And our complete sufficiency is found in You, Lord Jesus. Receive the praise and the glory you deserve from our hearts and our lips. In Jesus' name we pray.